Hello ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the greatest games on the Blizzard. My name is Marcus Bell, with me is Jonathan Wilson. And with us today is Richard Jolly, football journalist for The National, The Guardian, The Independent, The Telegraph and many, many more. Richard, welcome to the pod. Good to be here. Now today, ladies and gentlemen, we go back to the 23rd of October 2011. Old Trafford, Manchester United 1, Manchester City 6. Richard, why have you chosen this game? I think it's one of the most significant games um, that we've had in this country probably in the last 20-odd years for a number of reasons. And I guess the most obvious one is, quite simply, is that, that it was the heaviest defeat Alex Ferguson ever suffered. Um, but it was also one of the most significant in terms of it shifted the balance of power in Manchester. That game, it really did more than anything else, even though Manchester United won the title the following year in Sir Alex Ferguson's final season. I think that was the start of a run of City wins at Old Trafford. Um, I think it was the, the, really, you could see that City were on the up and United were on the slide. It, it came five months after a Champions League final and United hadn't actually lost since they lost to Barcelona in that game. So at that point, you could say they were one of the two best teams in Europe. And then they're losing 6-1 at home to Manchester City, which was just a scoreline that absolutely nobody could believe. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it had been sort of bubbling up with, with Manchester City gaining ground on, on Manchester United as they, as they sort of spent a few more, uh, spent a bit more money, brought in a, some more different faces, managers as well, Jonathan. Man City was slowly but surely getting there. But I think for a lot of neutrals, myself included, you always thought, yeah, but they won't quite get there. If you see what I mean. Yeah, it's, it's you know, one of the joys of doing these podcasts is you look back at things you think you remember and realise that you don't remember them at all. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, we, we, we did the we did a podcast with Jack Bidbrook talking about the, the FA Cup semi-final the previous year when City had beaten United. And he, he, he make, made the point that that was the moment at which City take over from United. Mm. And I, I guess in retrospect, he, he's right. It, that is the first real sign. But it's the FA Cup. Mm. You know, there's all kinds of excuses happening in the FA Cup. It's a one-off game. Yeah, who knows how much teams really care? You know, as, as Richard's just alluded to, Manchester United had um, the, the Champions League final coming up. So if they weren't fully focused on the the, the FA Cup semi final, that's entirely natural and normal. Um, we've seen teams put in good performances in the cup who then don't kick on. Uh, for 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 a result like this in the league, and, and not just to win, but to to win in such emph- emphatic style. Yeah, it really was a sign of things have changed, and of course, it, the, the the margin of victory, although we didn't know it at the time, turned out to be crucial in the title race that year. And actually, um, Sir Alex Ferguson even mentioned goal difference in the press conference after the game, without necessarily knowing quite how significant it would be. But I think much later on, he rued the three late goals when United were really chasing the game, and when it was only it only been three one until about the eighty eighth minute. But it was those three late goals. And just to come back to um to what you were saying earlier, a Paul Scholes was sent off in the FA Cup semi-final, so you could say, would it have been different had it been 11 against 11? Johnny Evans, very similar players. <laughs> well, yes, but also you had the community shield between the two teams. Well, absolutely, yeah. City go 2-0 up, United come back and win 3-2. And that's, going back to what Marcus said, that's how it always felt, that United would just stay that bit ahead of them and that they'd always conjure up that late goal and as long as Ferguson was there, you always had that feeling of invincibility about Ferguson's United, 
even as you watch them and thought they're not actually as good as the 2008 team and they've not really replaced Ronaldo and some of their players are getting older but it was still Ferguson's Manchester United and I think that because of that Roberto Mancini winning the title against Ferguson's United is actually a greater achievement than the subsequent Premier League title City won even though the the later team scored more goals and Guardiola's team got 100 points. Yeah, it's interesting you say that about the in the Community Shield and that and that magic. So it absolutely was tapping into what I was saying, and, and and that was also seen in the previous Premier League campaign, 2010-11, where there was a nil-nil at the Etihad, and that was sort of seen as a little bit of progression there for Manchester City. Then they go to Old Trafford, it's one-all, and Rooney brings out that overhead kick. Okay, it might have been a bit of a shinner, but my goodness, you know, if you can control the ball with the shin like that, then then you you know you you're worthy of it, but. Again, there was always that bit of quality. Um, but Manchester City, Jonathan, had been had been gathering players. You know that Sergio Aguero was up front for them. You know we we were beginning to see uh, what he could do. I mean, I suppose he hit the ground running really. But but one or two of the players and um, and 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 a certain Mario Balotelli as well, who had the, the mercurial Balotelli, who had a lot of talent. He had a lot of problems or. Uh, accusations, shall we say, off the field of various things. I mean, the day before this game, there was the firework incident. But Man City had a group of players who could produce moments of magic. They could, but I think you know, we've seen this before, maybe more in Italy than we have in England, of teams who spend a lot of money getting a lot of great players and have they actually thought about the team structure? And I think of all his many strengths, one of, one of Ferguson's greatest was that, yes, he spent money, but it wasn't vast fortunes. And by and large, when he bought players, it was to fit a plan. So some of those plans didn't work. So Veron, I guess, is the most obvious example of that. If he brought in a player at significant expense, and it, it it didn't quite come off. But you could see what he was trying to do to to shift from a four four two to you know to to, to pack the midfield. Um, and so that I think is the difference. And so what I was you know, what I was saying before, you sort of forget things, uh, and and when you look back at, at, at games in the way we're doing now you start to put things in context more. So it's two months before this game that United had beaten Arsenal 8-2, which was one of those games. Was, I mean, okay, to an extent, it was about Arsenal being hopeless. But it was also just about this ruthless, brilliant team. Um, and then it, a, a month after that, a month before this game, you had Tevez refusing to come off the bench, refusing to warm up for City away against Bayern Munich. And that, that moment, Certainly, the way I saw it at the time, and I think most people in the British media at the time saw it as, yeah, that 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 city, they've bought these players, but you could. But, uh, one of the reasons those players go to City is that they they can't quite be trusted elsewhere. That there's there's a there's a, there's a glitch in them that means they're unreliable. So Balotelli, for, for in a different way to Tevez, would fall into that. But the the fact that this this sort of this game almost feels like the the third in a in a trilogy. Of United winning a two, the, the the I mean the real shame of of uh, Tevez refusing to to warm up, which it seemed at the time to have sent City spinning off its axis, and then City suddenly do this, and the the fact that those three games all came within a two month period seems to me from the perspective of late twenty twenty, it's utterly remarkable. I also think the eight two started an era in a different respect, in that. 
Beginning with that, over the last decade, we've actually had quite a lot of really spectacular scorelines in meetings between top teams. I mean, I think it was only a week after this one that there was the Arsenal 5-Chelsea 3 game where Van Persie got a hat-trick. And over that subsequent decade, we've become more used to sort of five nils and six ones and things like that. The previous decade, you could argue, was dominated by the kind of Mourinho Benitez style games that would be nil nil or one nil. And that was part of the shock of the six one was it, it, it came completely out of the blue in every respect, except the uh, the eight two two months earlier. It's interesting to see that with, with Manchester City, all these players and, and, and new faces that were sort of coming and going around this time. It, it wasn't that long before, I mean, what was it, December 2009, Roberto Mancini arrived at Manchester City, taking over from Mark Hughes. I mean, you know, I, I understand this game is, is, is nearly two years later, but that's quite a bit of a change. I mean, Mancini gets that FA Cup win and then he has his sights firmly on the on the league. I mean, Richard, what was it like when 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 Mancini came in? He obviously had success at Inter. Did you feel that this was the guy who was going to really change Manchester City's fortunes around? In all honesty, I didn't know because I think, as Jonathan says, you do think it's one of these. Can it just go completely wrong? Will they just spend too much money um, and not spend it particularly well? Um, a few months after he came in, they had the game against Tottenham. Uh, the Etihad, where basically the winner gets to go in the Champions League and the loser gets to go in the Europa League. It's Tottenham who win it. And we didn't know that much about the, the kind of the Sheikh Mansour Manchester City at that point. And the, you're already thinking, well, maybe will they sack Mancini straight away? They obviously didn't. I think what happened then, the next two seasons are two very, very different seasons in terms of progressing a team and building a team. And that first summer of uh, 2010, was the summer in which Yaya Toure came in, amongst others. But Mancini's team for that next season, where they went on to win the FA Cup, was not actually great to watch. He concentrated on making them hard to beat. It was Gareth Barry and Nigel de Jong in the centre of midfield with Yaya just in front of them. Mancini used the word mentality virtually every press conference, partly because of its similarity to the mentality in Italian, no doubt. But I mean, he, he just wanted to implement this winning mentality and it came from the back. And they were, as I say, not, not aesthetically a great team, not the most attacking team. The following summer, when Sergio Aguero comes in, Yaya Toure moves back into the centre of midfield. Nigel de Jong is dropped. They become a 4-4-2 attacking team. Briefly, we thought that the quartet of Aguero, Dzeko, Balotelli, Tevez is arguably the best quartet of strikers in English football since Ferguson's famous four um, in the treble winners of 1999. And that City team is a very, very different one from the one the year before. And the team the year before, if they were going to beat United, it was only 1-0. The 2011-12 team actually have a lot more goals in them. Well, I think the other point there, sorry, I, th I, th I think the other point there about the expectations is this is City in the way City used to be. Yeah, they haven't won the league at this point. And we know what City are. We know what they do. And yeah, this is also their second bite at having an incredibly wealthy owner. Okay, much, much wealthier than their previous incredibly wealthy owner. But the previous attempt at this had ended with Svenjo and Eggson conceding six goals, eight goals, whatever it was at Middlesbrough. Eight, eight, eight goals. Eight yeah. At mm. Middlesbrough. Um, mm. So, 
I, I, but, but there were a lot of reasons not to have faith. Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, how, but Jonathan, how concerned do you think Sir Alex Ferguson was of this new city side as Richard's just mapped out for us there? I mean, it was quite different to the team that had been in the previous season. Well, I mean, he must have been concerned because when any when there's any new force, you don't quite know what they're going to do. When they have that much money, of course they're a threat to you. And I, I guess he, he'd sort of seen the first phase of this kind of owner with, with Chelsea. And my suspicion at the time was he slightly underestimated how good Chelsea would be. Uh, and again... Part of that is that they, they had that sort of long running when they seemed to be spending loads of money and going nowhere. And then Abramovich arrives. And even then, the first season, 2003-04, you know, is, is, is nothing particularly special. They end up... Um, you know, Ranieri was famously the dead man walking for, for the majority of that season. And then Mourinho arrives and suddenly you've got the two. You've got a really, really good manager and you've got the money to buy really, really good players. And I, I think... Ferguson did for a little while struggle to to adapt to that, but being Ferguson, he, he's eventually able to and puts together the two thousand seven eight team, which in some ways was was probably his best team. Um, so yeah, he he must have been concerned, and he 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 was he's too astute a man not to have to to have been led us led astray by the thought, well, will City always fail? So this this is guaranteed to fail, while at the same time, in every public appearance making the point this is City and therefore they will fail just to undermine them a bit. <laughs> Indeed. And I mean, the the other thing is that City and United had become rivals in the transfer market. City had signed Carlos Tevez. Uh, they tried to sign Rooney the previous autumn. And then the summer of 2011, they signed Sami Nasri, who was wanted by both Manchester clubs. And actually, you got a reaction the following summer when United signed Robin Van Persie, who City also wanted, or rather Mancini also wanted. I'm not sure that City themselves were willing to pay for a fifth striker to join Aguero, Tevez, Dzeko and Balotelli. But that sort of prompted the Van Persie signing to some degree. All right, gentlemen, let's have a quick break and then we will talk about the match itself. See you in a moment, everybody. Welcome back to The Greatest Games on the Blizzard, everybody. Right then, gentlemen. So, uh, going into the game, it, it was, I think Manchester City were two points above Manchester United. And again, Manchester United fans and a lot of neutrals were probably thinking, oh, OK, Manchester United, you know, win this, you, you're back on top. Um, as the teams come out, the commentator saying, when has there been a more significant meeting in the 120-year history of the Manchester derby? Now, of course you know, Sky Sports or whoever it was, you know, like to sort of hype these things up and so on. And it is, you know, a bold statement. But, you know, Richard, it was a very significant meeting with these two sides in the context of, of what we've just been talking about. Yeah, absolutely. And and um, we'd always, as we were saying earlier, every time you get the sense City are getting closer, but United will find a way of putting them back in their place. I mean, I was at the the derby a couple of years earlier, Tevez's first derby for City, which was the 4-3 that Michael Owen sealed after 96 minutes and which Ferguson felt was the greatest derby. And so you just always thought that United would kind of find a way. And United at home in those days, they they lost so, so few games. I mean, I've, I've been going through the games 
for over the previous six seasons when I'd been covering matches at Old Trafford fairly regularly. And I think I had only covered three United home defeats in six years. And there were, there were one or two other ones I missed. I wasn't at the 4-1 defeat to Liverpool. But you just didn't expect United to lose at Old Trafford. And you did think that one way or another, City would find a way of losing things. And then obviously the other thing, of course, you have in the build-up is, is Balotelli um, and his impromptu fireworks display in his bathroom. I forgot that was the day before. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it culminated. Mancini in the press conference after the after the game, and I remember this quote to this day. He said, "I don't know what happened, but Mario now lives in a hotel." <laughs> <laughs> and, and then, bizarrely, I don't know how City and Greater Manchester Fire Brigade or whoever did this, but somehow he became an ambassador for for Greater Manchester Fire Service. Marvelous. And they picked a picture of Balotelli. He looked serious in the picture, but the, even that, it just made it look even funnier. Just this picture of Mario Balotelli as a fire officer. <laughs> I mean, Jonathan, at the time, there were so many stories of Balotelli, obviously a lot of them apocryphal, but, you know, taking a kid back to school and saying, you know, well, what's the matter? Trying to sort him out and talk to his teachers or paying for everybody's petrol at the petrol station. And as, like I say, some of these are true, some of these are, are, are not true, but... He was an incredible character. We'd seen him produce some some brilliant moments, um, probably most notably in an intershirt before Man City, if my memory serves me correctly. But we'd seen some moments of madness. You know, there was that story that, that Mourinho spoke of when he was into manager. They were away to CSK Moscow, I think. Balotelli was on a booking. He's getting a bit oh, spicy. Half time, he says 13 of his 15 minutes he's got with the team is trying to tell Balotelli to calm it. 46th minute, bang, red cards, you know, this sort of stuff. I mean, he was an incredible character. And we were just, there was so much media attention on him going into this game. Yeah, and of course, that that is why he, he celebrates his goal in the way he does. <laughs> um, and I think at this stage, this was sort of the height of um, the sort of positive uh, publicity had in in England that mm. even the fireworks display it seems sort of the, the sort of it, it was born of a sort of naive exuberance and a, a slight sort of dislocation from how the world works. Um, so you know th- things like when you know when he he turn up at a an office block and ask to use their toilet or something, it's a kind of you can understand how it could happen even though nobody else ever did it. Um, and there was something quite charming about that. Uh, and you'd even understand how if you were, yeah, if you from a very early age have been plucked out of normal life and put in a football academy, well, of course you don't quite understand how things work. What? How would you? Why would you? If you're not sort of going to school every day, if you're not going to the office every day, um, and because he clearly had that, yeah, very large personality, that tended to to provoke all these scrapes. I think then, as the season goes on, some of those things turn a little bit sourer. Uh, and then, if, from a football point of view, that culminates with his, his red card away to Arsenal, which at the time looked as if it had cost City the title, should have cost City the title. Uh, but at, at this point, it's still naive, charming Balotelli, who on the pitch was clearly a, a magnificent footballer. And his finish for that first goal, again, it felt a very Balotelli finish. It was, it was something of great ingenuity, great improvisation, but also immense self-confidence. Yeah, he had that confidence, didn't he, Richard Balotelli, especially when taking penalties as well. I remember he had an interview once, I can't remember who it was, they 
I mean, Noel Gallagher actually off the top of my head, and he said, you know, you were so confident in taking a particular penalty. It might have been last minute one against Tottenham Hotspur, the three-two win at the Etihad, and he said you were on so much pressure, and he just said, yeah, but I never miss. And he had so much confidence to Balotelli at this time in his career. Yeah, it was as though the re- the madness of the rest of his life somehow disappeared when he was at the penalty spot, and he was the calmest man in the ground. And it was it was it was very very strange in that respect. He was a brilliant penalty taker, and I think uh, looking at him now, when I think at the moment he's without a club, and there were these rumours recently that Barnsley wanted him. Going back then, you can see why Mancini, who had obviously been an incredibly talented player himself, was seduced by Balotelli's talent because he genuinely could have gone on and become one of the top five players in the world. And to me, the two greatest performances of Balotelli's career were this one and the Euro 2012 semi-final, I think it was. Against Germany. Yeah, Mm. exactly. You know, against high-class teams, big pressure games. He was the best player in the pitch in both both games. He was the biggest individual reason why City won one and why Italy won the other. And Johnny Evans just couldn't handle him that day. I think actually my favourite Balotelli moment, I'm not sure if it was this winter when City did sort of an online advent calendar and one of the days was Balotelli and Carlos Tevez wrapping presents. And (laughs) Balotelli had not a clue what to do and Tevez trying to show him which Tevez as a teacher is quite a comic notion anyway. And then Balotelli is claiming he can't do it because he's left-handed, which Tevez then just does it left-handed. And Balotelli then just walks off, can't do it. And there's this great moment when, it's a very Argentinian moment, when Tevez looks at it and goes, que boludo, You're what, what an idiot, what a, what a thicko. Uh, yeah, he's, he's just a man just sort of completely different to everyone else, somehow parachuted in, into their world. And at City's old training ground at Carrington, we we could see the players' cars and where they parked. And obviously all the rest of them have expensive cars and they have sports cars and they have Range Rovers and all the rest of it. Nearly all of their cars were black or white. Balotelli had a camouflage Bentley, which stood out. (laughs) (laughs) It didn't just disappear as he sort of, you know. (laughs) I mean, yeah, there was that moment where he was trying to, get out of the bib when he when he was trying to take that bib. I mean, there's so many moments one can forget. Just he was uh, j- j- just, I don't know, so enjoyable at times, um, as you say. But, I mean, yeah, I suppose we should get to the game. You know, after 22 minutes, as you said, we sort of talked about the goal um, as well. I mean, I, I can't quite recall. Was it against, slightly against the run of play, the goal? I think Richard. slightly it was, uh, yeah. But go on, go on Richard. No, no, I mean, I, I yeah, I, I don't recall that so much. I mean, one thing I, that that stood out to me when watching the goal back was that it came from a James Milner cut back from the left. Mancini, in a lot of those games, would play James Milner ahead of Sami Nasri. And I know I talked to Micah Richards about this a few months ago, and he loved playing behind Milner because obviously Milner can run all day. He's your perfect big game player. But it was also the case that, what City did for a couple of these goals was a very bespoke tactic that David Silva seems to have introduced and which he was always involved in, which is that both of their wide men would turn up on the same flank and they'd work mm-hmm. an overload in that respect, get two or three players combining together very quickly and very closely. It was something that 
Silver and Sami Nasri did absolutely brilliantly in the Pellegrini title season in 2013-14. And in the days before Silver moved in field to become a kind of free eight number 10, um, that, that was how City created a lot of goals by having two or three players turn up right next to each other and outnumber the opponents. And, and it's a Milner cross from the left for, uh, for Balotelli to, to tuck it in. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly how the goal comes. It's, it's Silver's pass to Milner. Milner cuts it back. Balotelli at the edge of a box just sort of opens his body up and you're using defenders to, to, to block off De Gea's eye line, just sort of rolls it from like, the edge of the box into the bottom corner. And it's the most sort of casual yet precise finish. And then, of course, he lifts up his shirt and yeah, that has the Why Always Me t-shirt, for which he's booked, clearly. Uh-huh. Um, so again, half-time 1-0, it seems, well, this, this is a bit strange, but the, the, I suppose the big moment, certainly if you're a Manchester United fan, um, if the game is two minutes after half time, where Johnny Evans is is sent off because he he's struggling to deal with with Balotelli and Ferguson said in the post match after he said you should he said he always wants his defender to let the man run through on goal because you've still got eleven men on the pitch but wasn't to be and, and Johnny Evans was sent off Richard he was yeah and um, I think there's been a bit of revisionism in the last few years since Johnny Evans left Manchester United because he's been a a very very good player for both. Leicester and Northern Ireland in that time. But at that stage, I felt that whenever anything went horribly wrong in the United defence, it often involved Johnny Evans one way or another. And I think some of the subsequent revisionism has come because he was the odd man out when he managed to lose a battle between uh, him, Phil Jones and Chris Smalling as to which one would get bombed out. And, you know, right now, obviously, anyone would take Johnny Evans over Phil Jones. Um, but he just couldn't cope with Balotelli then, and it was a red card. Um, and it, but it was also the, the start of the decline of the United defence because Ferdinand and Vidic were both getting older; they were both getting more injury prone. Evans was the one who was supposed to be coming in as the long-term successor, and he had some spells where he looked where he looked good enough, but he had others where, as in this game, there was just that lack of conviction, the occasional tendency to to, to get things completely wrong, and that that that. You know, clearly it wouldn't have been a 6-1 had he stayed on. But I think you're right about Bet Evans that because he had that loan spell at Sunderland uh, in the promotion season under Roy Keane when 95% of the time he was absolutely brilliant. But he, he, he was, you know, you know, you get those goalkeepers who are brilliant, but you know that one or two games a season they'll make a terrible mistake. He was sort of a centre-back equivalent of that. So I can't actually remember who Sunderland lost to in the Cup that year, but it was Johnny Evans' fault. I remember that quite clearly. Um, and I, I, you know, this this was an example of that, that uh, he, you know, he could have... Aguero plays Balotelli through. He could have let him go. Maybe Balotelli scores, maybe he doesn't, but Evans takes him down and it's the most obvious red card you'll ever see. <laughs> and then... I mean, but still, though, Manchester United don't look too perturbed, if, if I remember correctly, down to 10 men. But when that second goal goes crashing in on, on 60 minutes... Well, I mean, United should have conceded the penalty. Anderson fouls, uh, fouls um, Balotelli and gets away with it. But, you know, it's... And, you know, the commentators describe it as a, as a coming together. I mean, in the VAR age, it's a penalty. And I think in that age, it probably should have been a penalty. Yeah. Well, the, the, when the second goal goes in, that's when the alarm bells really start to ring if they hadn't already for Manchester United. And and again, it's uh, lovely work from David Silver and James Milner down the right, Richard. It is, yeah. Um, it, that, that combination again, but this time with them on the other flank. Um, and I, I went back and did, 
to, to read what I wrote about the game, not out of sort of narcissism, but just because just to see if, how wrong it was. <laughs> and I, I described Milner at the time as uh, as being often unproductive in a city shirt. And I think part of that was because he was so good and hard, at the hard working side and the tactical side of things, but he wasn't really getting the numbers of goals and assists that you would expect for a wide man at a top club at that point. Um, but it, it, it was a terrific low cross from him. Um, and, I mean, it was quite similar, I think, to the third goal in some respects, which is Micah Richards' cross for Sergio Aguero. But again, it was that was City were opening United up there. And, um, and Micah Richards at that point, he had a fantastic season. And yet he lost his place about six weeks from the end of the season to Pablo Zabaleta, who was absolutely outstanding in the second derby of the season. And, and arguably that was almost the beginning of the end for Micah because he never got his place back from Zabaleta. I mean, Jonathan, was it, uh, for some people it would be the second goal. Others it would be the third goal. Dare I say others it might be the sixth goal. Was it For me, I can't remember watching it, but it was definitely the second or the third goal where I thought, oh, blimey. This is this is actually happening. We are seeing Manchester City. Gonna, they are going to win at Old Trafford. Oh, I, I think the second goal, yeah, against ten men. I guess maybe, maybe not. Maybe, maybe I've kind of. Well, that's what I mean. Yeah. May, maybe ten years of of watching City win relentlessly yeah. has has sort of uh, changed my my perspective. But, I mean, the third goal is a is an absolutely brilliant goal. Mm. The Yaya Toure, I don't know, it's a forty yard pass into Balotelli's feet, and Balotelli. Is strong enough to, to, I can't remember which defender's on him, presumably Ferdinand, but it's strong enough to hold him off and then just lays it out to, well, to his left, because you know, the City right, because he's got his back to goal. And then um, um, comes to Milner, he's got Richards going on the outside, plays it to Richards and then across for Aguero. But it's, it's just, uh, you, you can see that's a move that's been worked on. You can see Balotelli knows where to play. You can see that Milner knows that Richards is, is coming outside him. And it, it's it's just a goal that's so so clean and quick in execution that there's there's no way of defending it. Certainly not with ten men. There's no way of defending against it. Hmm. And Manchester United, they would sort of pick themselves up and and got a lovely goal through Fletcher, of course. I mean, some might argue it was the goal of the game. It was it, it was a beauty. But Richard, did you think when that went in? Did you think, oh, hang on, or or did you think, no, this is this, that's a consolation? No, I think at the time you're thinking, hang on, surely they can't, because logically they can't. But, but the, Well, that shows the, you that, that what we've been conditioned to think with Manchester United. Well, the, They're down to 10 men. And the amazing thing is, Javier Hernandez runs to get the ball out of the net. He thinks it's on. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they've had so many comebacks, and there were so many games where they'd be sort of 2-0 down, and they get one, and you think, well, they, they've won this game now. And okay, mm-hmm. this one's a different one, because it's from 3-0 down, it's with 10 men, it's against mm-hmm. the top team. But you still just thought um, it could be on. And it's so different from the modern Manchester United in that respect. You know, there have been any number of games in, in the post-Ferguson era where you think, yep, they're beaten here. But not that one and not then. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Because then then the goals go flying in at the other end. And, I mean, Ferguson said in in the post-match interview that the team was pushing up far too high, you know, when considering they had 10 men. The full-backs were playing like wingers. Use words to describe their play like suicidal and crazy, and I suppose I mean Jonathan, does that go in with the mentality he'd installed in those players that actually at three, you know, even when they got it back to three-one, I mean, it was very, very, very unlikely. You know, down to ten men, of course, and and, and so on. But 
perhaps they still believed they could get something out of the game. Yeah, well, I'm sure they did. And and, and you know, Chicharito going to get the ball out of the net shows that. And, and mm. I think City must have had a doubt uh, because yeah. the, the whole previous sort of 30 years of history have told you this is possible. Oh, sorry, 20 years then of history have mm. told you this is possible. Um, and, and you know, I, I, I think for Ferguson to be that critical of his players, I mean, I, I can understand why, because obviously losing 6-1 is, is humiliating. Uh, but... If I had got a, got another goal back after 85 minutes, say, and suddenly I've got five minutes plus injury time, I would put a huge amount of money on them getting that equaliser. <laughs> so, yeah, you, you can't... You don't get those comebacks if you accept defeat. And, okay, maybe you can say the situation was, was so so much against them that they should have been a bit more realistic. And, and it, But it, it, it's still... You know, it, it's, I still think the percentage thing for them to do when Fletcher scores that goal is to chase a second goal. You can't you can't imagine the circumstances to 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 reach the you know to reach what happened on the final day where that goal difference becomes crucial. Yeah, you know, that that can't be your thought when you're three one down, when you've just scored that that goal to 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 cut the deficit. If you, when you're United, when you're at home, when you've got this history of comebacks, when City have got this history of uh, of of letting things slip, in some ways it's a great opportunity to humiliate them again and to to, to basically mean that for the next 5 or 10, 15 years, however long, even when they're 3-0 up with 10 minutes to go with a man advantage, they're going to have that little doubt of, oh no, it could happen again. I think it's safe to say, though, Richard, when, when the fourth goes in, I mean, that was it, surely. I mean, it came nine minutes after... Fletcher uh, made it 3-1 but I mean it's from a corner it's not like it's a, it's a breakaway and Manchester United are all up the other end I mean I mean how the goal goes in it does feel like it is the 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 fourth goal kind of in the 90th minute which of course it was yeah exactly I mean I mean sort of Eddie and Jekko just the tapping when Lescott knocks it back across the goal but like you say United weren't all committed upfield because it was a corner the influence of Edin Dzeko as a substitute would obviously be proved much later that season on the final day when he scores against QPR. Um, and and Dzeko, Dzeko was a, a very, very strange player at City, uh, partly still an enigma to this day, uh, someone who would often be brilliant as a substitute, then he'd get his chance as a starter, and then he'd be terrible, and, and he'd end up back on the bench again where he'd score again. And he'd, it, his City career kind of went in those sort of patterns. Um and I felt that maybe it was a psychological thing with Dzeko. He, he, I think one of the reasons why he was more consistent at Wolfsburg and Roma was that he was someone who actually quite liked being the main man and having everything built around him. Whereas at City, they had four strikers and initially Tevez was obviously the, the, the major character. Later, Aguero emerges as the great goal scorer and Balotelli's always the one who needs special attention because he's Balotelli. So Dzeko was always, he was always kind of the other one. But he was a brilliant substitute, and um, and he showed that in this game with with two goals in in very quick succession. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, and 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 uh, either side of the David Silver one. Yeah, I mean that. Yeah, I, it's funny when you describe Jacko like that. There's there's one or two. I mean, really, I'm honing in on the whole substitute thing. There's a slight sort of Oligana Solskjaer uh, sort of feel to, to, as I say, to those those goals from from coming on as as substitute. Perhaps we'll look forward to him have a having a slightly underwhelming time as Manchester City manager in the future, if that is anything to go by. <laughs> um, but but 4-1 soon became 5-1, Jonathan, and it's David Silva 
who seemed to be involved in everything that they did well that day, and he was down the right side. And I think it was Jekko that, that Jekko's pass, yeah. yeah. So yeah. The, you know, it's a nutmeg pass and a nutmeg finish, and it, it just sort of, I mean, it, you know, it, it, that, the, the fact that it's a pair of nutmegs that, that kind of yeah. brings that goal. It just seems to be piling ignominy upon ignominy. But I mean, Jekko, I think, was is a very strange footballer. He's somebody who's really hard to to categorise because he 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 sort of you know, when when he came through in Bosnia, Bosnia had never seen anything like him because Bosnian footballers stereotypically are, are sort of little technical dribblers. Um, but he's this sort of you know a, a target man build, but he's only sort of half a target man. He's he, you know he's he's not Niall Quinn. There I talk about Niall Quinn yet again, um, <laughs> but he's kind of half a Niall Quinn. But he's also kind of. No one's ever compared him to Niall Quinn before, by the way. Oh, I think if you do, if you're doing kind of a list of greatest city target men, mm-hmm. you'd say he's not as good as Quinn. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you know, he, he 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 sort of because of his build and because he's got a sort of slightly clumsy manner about him, you think he he, he yeah. You know, I think people have have thought he's a target man. But he, you know, he's not. He's much more mobile than that. He's he's good at dropping off. This pass to to Silva shows his technical quality. I mean, in, in Bosnia when he came through, he was um, he was nicknamed uh, um, the uh, not a lamppost. What's the word I'm looking for? The yeah, the the metal pole that you put a sign on. Uh, do we have a word for that in English? I, I, just a pole. Yeah, a pole. But know. that's confusing because yeah. he's not Polish. He's Bosnian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, let's call him a lamppost because it's the equivalent. A, a big steel thing in the ground. And um, was he? I think he's Italian. Yeshnikar, uh, whichever Bosnian club he was at, just didn't see, didn't see anything in him. And when Wolfsburg said, "Yeah, we'll, we'll give you twenty thousand euros or twenty five thousand euros for him," the directors went out and, and bought the best champagne they could find. They couldn't believe they got this incredible deal <laughs> to get rid of this useless lumbering oaf. And then two years later, he's single handedly winning a league with Wolfsburg, and they're sort of thinking. <laughs> Oh, maybe we could have got a bit more than twenty thousand euros. <laughs> so I, I think people throughout throughout his career have struggled to kind of to to quite place him. And I, I think, but I think Richard's right that he, I don't think it's an ego thing that he needs things to be built around him. But I think it's something about how he is on the pitch that if you think of how he played both for Wolfsburg and for for Bosnia, he's often a very lonely forward. You know, he'd often have twenty or thirty yards. He'd be, you know, be a, you know, nine other outfielders quite a long way behind him, and his job would be to hold it up, to get a free kick, to get a throw in. And I think he's good at that because he's got the sort of smartness to do that. He's got enough technical ability and enough physical ability to do that. But when he's in a team that's dominant, like City, when he's got to play with other creative attacking players, that just complicates things. And I don't think he was ever quite as as good at that. Well, he, he he got the sixth goal, and again, David Silva was involved. Lovely ball through to, to Edin Dzeko, sort of runs through and finishes 6-1. And I mean, you know, that, that late flurry of goals, Richard, really just was was so enjoyed and relished by Manchester City and made it really, really embarrassing for Manchester United. I mean, that it's, it's those goals that make it such a, a, a memorable occasion. Had it ended 3-1... Dare I even say four one? Of course, it would have been a major, massive result, and, and and a one that they would have cherished for for many years. But those two late goals and that sixth goal as it goes in, they just they couldn't believe their luck. 
Exactly. And it's still it's still just the most resonant scoreline probably probably in the Premier League in, in, in since then I would I would say. Certainly in the context of of who it was against. I mean it was Ferguson's two thousand and sixty second game in management and to have the first six one against him then um says something. I mean for David Silver, that assist for the Jekko goal, the the hooked eye of the needle pass, that remains his most famous and most celebrated city assist, even though in one respect, it didn't change anything. It was a game that had already been won. And in one respect, it was a very untypical assist for David Silva because he often makes things look deceptively easy. And I think a lot of people, when they would have seen that one, would think, actually, that's a technical skill that very, very few players could do. Um, but the scale of the defeat, I think um, Ferguson recognised it immediately. And, and sometimes Ferguson was very, very good at reading the mood. And he knows when you lose 6-1, you can't make excuses. You can't complain about the referee. You can't mention injuries or what, whatever else. You just have to accept it and take it. Um, and as I said earlier, he did mention straight in the press conference about the goal difference, which proved a very prescient comment. Um, and to go back a couple of months earlier, he read the mood after the 8-2 over Arsenal and didn't gloat over yeah, Arsene yeah. Wenger, which he might well have done had it been a 2-0 or a or a 3-1 or something like that. But 8-2, he just recognised the magnitude of it and was actually quite quite restrained in what he said about Arsenal and quite generous. Yeah, I know. I vividly remember that, actually. He he almost seemed slightly embarrassed or, or almost apologetic, didn't he? You know, so I think he even said something like, yeah, there's no need to score eight goals or, or something like that. But he certainly used the word embarrassing a couple of times at least Jonathan in the in the post match interview after this game because there's no other word really that uh, was more fitting yeah i mean one of the things ferguson always stressed you know is a habitual thing he would say after defeats is you know the, the important thing is not the defeat it's the response to the defeat and it took a little while for them to respond um uh, and and rio ferdinand uh subsequently said in an interview that in some ways it was the best thing that could have happened for united in that they realised they were playing a very, very open, in a very open way. And it made the whole team, not just the defence, tighten up. And that, I, mean, it, I guess it gets them back in the title race in this season, uh, but it, it then allows them to win the title the following season. So, I mean, the, the best thing that could happen for them, I, I, I suspect he probably would rather not have <laughs> lost 6-1. Yeah. But it was a, a, you know, it was a, a classic example of Ferguson's strength that he... He took an embarrassment. He took a huge defeat, and he used it as a lesson and built from it. And and yeah, they they don't they're not sort of obliterated and disappear. They they come back and win the title again in his final season. Yeah, but but obviously he would have left a year earlier had they won the league in twenty twelve. So City did manage to postpone his retirement for a year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, they, they, I mean, Manchester City obviously they had the lead, so they would argue that you know they they. So they did go on to win the league. Had they not have done, they would have rued that league that they'd they'd thrown away. But Manchester United will look back on this season and say, "My goodness, how did we not win the league?" Because despite that six-one defeat, as you say, they overturned it, and we go into the third last game of the season. Which, you know, if if the six-one was you know the most sort of significant meeting in the hundred and twenty-year history, it quickly became the sort of second most significant when three days before. Uh, three three games, uh, sorry, the third last game of the season saw the two of the sides meet at the Etihad with, with just a Vincent Company goal separating the sides. And even then, Manchester City nearly messed it all up, of course, at home against against QPR. 
Um, but it was, but this season, Richard was so significant because it was finally winning the league. Because as, as we said at the start, the FA Cup's all very well, but the league is really where you're the where you're the the sort of the, the king of the country, if you see what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously there have been the banner up and the Stratford end at Old Trafford, um, sort of counting the number of years that City had gone without a, a trophy of any kind. Um, but Mancini managed to take that down by winning the FA Cup, not literally. I mean, I, I, well, not as far as I'm aware, anyway, he might have done. Um, but, but to actually win the league and to displace United in the process, I, I think was a huge achievement. Um, and to do it within the same city was an even bigger achievement. And I, I think Mancini, in some ways, is almost the kind of the forgotten great Premier League manager, partly because of what's happened since then at City, partly because his, his final year was underwhelming, to say the least, partly because he obviously did spend a hell of a lot of money in both transfer fees and wages. And one of the things that I thought of looking back at that game is at the time, because it's Ferguson's United, you automatically think they're favourites. Well, I looked at the two team sheets and, and, and for the midfield and forward line, this is United's. It's Nanny, Darren Fletcher, Anderson, Ashley Young, and then Wayne Rooney and Danny Welbeck up front. City, James Milner, Yaya Toure, Gareth Barry, David Silva, Sergio Aguero, Mario Balotelli. Well, I think looking back at it now, you can say, well, clearly City did have the more talented team. And to some extent, they ought to win. Maybe not 6-1, of course. But it's still an achievement to, 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 to knock Ferguson's United off their perch. And, and, and that's what Mancini did. And that was, that was his great feat for City. I mean, on that point of, of United's side looking weirdly underwhelming, the middle of the midfield in the 8-2 was Anderson and Tom Cleverley. Which... Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, in that brief phase where one or two people were deluded enough to believe that Tom Cleverley was England's next great midfielder. Um, and and obviously the defence was getting older, as we said, and Ferguson went for years without signing a central midfielder over the age of about 18, um, which just didn't make any sense. Um, during the time of the 6-1, it was Paul Scholes was briefly in retirement at that point, only to come out of it again, make his second United debut actually as a sub in the FA Cup tie against City but that was bringing Skulls back at 37 or 38 um, and whereas one of the one of the reasons City won that 1-0 in the return fixture was the power they had in midfield and the running power of Yaya Toure who basically finished Jisung Park's career that game because Park just couldn't keep up with him at all and, and Park was Ferguson's specialist man marker for the big occasion the man you put on someone like Andrea Pirlo, but that day he just couldn't cope with Yaya Toure. And I think one of the differences between uh, Mancini's city and Guardiola's city was that Mancini built a team who were a lot bigger. It, it, it was quite, it was an athletic team in terms of their running power, but also in terms of their size. If you look at the, some of his sides, apart from Aguero and David Silva, you'd have nine six-footers out there. So it was, he had different ways of winning games with that, with with those teams, and Yaya Toure was near his physical peak at that time. Vincent Company was near his physical peak. You had Band Balotelli, whose physical peak was obviously he was very very quick. James Milner still can run all day, um, even now. Uh, Micah Richards could bomb forward as well, and United actually. It, it was a mixed side in terms of age, but some of the key players were aging players. Then uh, the Ferdinand Vidic and Ever at the back. Gigs in midfield, Skulls 
when he came back out of retirement as well. Um, and I think all of those factors combined in, in making City a formidable team who could, who, who could just about, just about take advantage of United's slight drop off. Well, it's it's been great unpacking this one with you, Richard. I mean, you know, just to finish with a couple of stats, Manchester United's worst home defeat since 1955, this match, and the first time since 1930 they'd conceded six goals at Old Trafford just to, you know, re-emphasise the, the, sort of the magnitude of, of this result. But I'll leave the final words to that uh, fan commentator who had possibly the best day of his life and and summed it all up nicely when the 6-1 went in and just shouted down the camera, 6-1 at the swamp. (laughs) So uh, there we are, Richard. Thank you very much for coming in uh, to the pod. It's been a pleasure having you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, For more stories like that, ladies and gentlemen, check out theblizzard.co.uk. But until next week, have a good one and we'll be back with another great game from football. Cheers.